0: even more of a cellular level is that we all evolved to uh, we're tribal, right? And there's always hierarchies and tribes and anything that's going to emphasize your, we're we're kind of predisposed to feel good about things that show us with elevated status on the, on the totem pole and, and feel bad about stuff that show us lower. And from, you know, most of society for most of our human mankind's existence, there are only so many opportunities to get feedback and get some indicator or stimuli on where you fall on the totem pole. Now, I mean, there's endless, endless images and endless opportunities, and you know, you're getting you're getting hit constantly, like with where where you are status wise and who's got something more or less, and it, it's people are just bombarded. And I definitely think it it is. It definitely can impact if you're not well adjusted if you're not prepared and you're not conscious it can certainly do a lot of damage to people And i think it is
1: in case you missed last week's episode i had a great conversation with my friend shira lazar about what's trending in the online creator space this week i'm excited to share my conversation with the inspired protagonist my attorney and good friend matt belinsky Matt has emerged as one of the go-to deal makers in the online media and tech sector. More recently, through COVID, Matt has been causing quite a scene online with his Balinski News Network, and has recently started promoting a public recall effort of LA District Attorney, George Gascone. True to our show, Matt gets vulnerable and shares some of the stories of what it was like struggling to find his way professionally through the depths of the great financial crisis and how he leveraged luck and hard work to find his way. Make sure you stay till the end of the episode where I'll share a list of any resources mentioned on today's episode. And if you haven't already, please leave us a rating and review at ratethispodcast.com slash D. I'll be reading those out on future episodes. So on to today's guest. Matt, first off, thank you so much for spending some time with me. Not only are you my attorney, but you've become a really good friend. And I feel like we're just getting started, buddy. So, you're one of the most connected guys I know. How did that happen? You grew up in LA, you went to Cornell for undergrad, you made it w- your way back to LA for law school at UCLA. Like, were you always the life of the party? Like, talk to me about the Matt Mojo.
0: So, the genesis of that was I mean, as a kid, I was pretty studious, I wasn't that social. I don't know, it just wasn't something that developed naturally for me. And, you know, but I got good grades and and I really leaned into school and and my parents, you know, really put an emphasis on that. and, and, And that was kind of my thing. Went to the Ivy League school, get into that later and what my thoughts are there. But same thing, I wasn't particularly, I was really focused on getting the best grades and kind of, I was solving for how to succeed within a measurable system. But as time went on in college, I'd come back to come back to LA during over, you know, spring break, summer break, what have you. And all my friends that went to USC and went to other colleges that were in a city or in LA, they they had all these cool internships, they had all these connections, and they seemed to be doing really cool stuff. This was the early days of the internet, you know, right after the turn of the millennium, and they seemed to be getting into entrepreneurial stuff. And I'm like, well, what the hell am doesn't seem like I'm finding these opportunities. I'm getting good grades in an Ivy league school and that, that leads to a handful of opportunities, but like it seemed like everyone I knew back here or in a city was doing way much cooler stuff. And so I I definitely started recalibrating and saying, wait a second, I don't have enough connections here other than the types of jobs that you get directly from a campus recruiting process, most of which I was not interested in, like I'm not opening up opportunities for myself. And it just seemed that 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 needed to be where I was focusing. And also back then I, I really was interested in the entertainment world, entertainment uh, industry as it existed prior to let's call it 2007, 2008 before, you know, which it, we'll get to, I think that was really real an inflection point in the shift to digital. But it was the film industry, and there was the television industry. You ascended there, and the career path there were to go to an agency or go to a studio production company, go work for a big executive, something like that. And I don't have any of those comp- any of those connections, so I figured going to UCA law school and kind of using that as a marker to kind of accelerate past the phase that a lot of other kids had to go and like work assistant jobs and and really network. That was what I wanted to that's that was what I was planning. And while I was in law school instead, you know, I I shifted, like I said, I shifted my allocate time and attention allocation, right? From, you know, 90% to grades and 10% to figuring out what I wanted to do and meeting people to, to heavily emphasizing expanding my network and just pretty much being okay with getting, you know, B's other than, uh, and finishing in the middle of my class, other than the entertainment and media program specifically, where I put put all my emphasis and finished at the top of the class in that program. And, and then it just became habit. And after that, I was just kind of, I I'd do it instinctually, you know, always looking to meet people, always looking to expand my network, always looking to open up opportunities through meeting people and seeing how,
1: how you can bring value. Yeah, I love that. What are the, your favorite kinds of projects to work on? And what are some of the deals you're most grateful for? The companies
0: uh, that I was most interested in working on were bringing traditional entertainment and media into the new digital age, right? And that's everything from you know Pluto TV, which is you know partially how you and I know each other, to the first startup that I worked on, that I advised 12 years ago called Mobile Roadie, which at the time was pretty much the the top.
1: Sure, Michael.
0: Yeah, yeah, Mike Schneider. And that, you know, it's an interesting story about how I got in, involved with them. But those are the cool projects. Like, hey, here's, here's something new and enterprising in the digital world. And can I connect the dots between that world and a more traditional media world of media properties and celebrities and talent?
1: So catch us up on and kind of rewind about BNN, you had sort of this thought, the Belinsky News Network, and you started getting some traction with it through COVID. What's that all about?
0: So, I've always been pretty outspoken on social media and always commenting on current affairs, current events, and politics, although that's not the, the people like to use that as a catch all term, but I don't really like it. And definitely part of the philosophy that I've developed over the last you know, four or five years, was that the traditional media sources, whether it's n- the newspapers, magazines, or TV stations, whether cable or broadcast, that we used to count on to do really good reporting and synthesize the facts in the world around us, they've corroded, they've decayed, they don't do a good job anymore, they don't live up, not, you know, in terms of, of quality, nor their ethics. And then at the beginning of covid a lot of these issues, some of which you know the people who followed me and my friends found interesting, and some of which they didn't really care about it, are Like, okay, if I'm not a news junkie, you know, how much of this stuff that Matt's, Matt talks about is really of interest to me? All of a sudden, news and information and what's going on in the world becomes a matter of life or death, and people, the quality and veracity of the information you're getting in the analysis is really critical and to your your how you're going to live your life over the coming months and possibly years. So I started, you know, calling out some of the stuff around COVID and analyzing some of the news in terms of, you know, the risk and how the politicians were reacting and what was going on in some of the international territories that got hit first and then a lot of information about its origination in China and some of my posts went viral while you know I started March 2020 with about 5,500 Instagram followers. I doubled that in about six weeks to 11,000, which is you know nice numbers, but not massive numbers. But I mean, the engagement was out of control. Like I was getting five to 600 messages a day because people were so wanted to know. It was all like kind of this interactive learning process and, and, and analysis and not all of it was supportive. I mean, some of it was people unhappy with what I was saying, but it was mostly supportive. And my following was growing and, and, and I kind of became a source for news about covid and related topics then that kind of funnels into doing a video and interview series and some of that was covid related some of it was you know business related and and how what the impact of COVID is going to be on business and that you know did about 25 videos my last name is bulinsky so it was a news network so friends of mine kind of decided to give it a kitschy name bnn instead of cnn uh, which i thought was funny but i don't think a really long-term solution. And then, so yeah, I was doing that consistently under that title through, you know, hardcore lockdown last summer and now I'm kind of taking a break from more formal content, but I'll, I'll be firing up, you know, more formal podcasts sometime in the next couple months.
1: Yeah. The thing that I appreciated about what you were doing with BNN on Instagram live last year was it really was, I felt an honest attempt to get signal on what was really happening. And you had, you know, incredible guests, different sectors, whether it's from health or, or real estate or commercial markets, and and it was interesting seeing the comments. There's also the kind of entertainment factor. It's almost like edutainment. It was incredible to see, like, just how many people really give a shit about your opinion. And I think it's partly because you really do care about trying to figure out what's real and what's true. And and that that gets into a whole nother discussion about law. And I, yeah, I know you've been really outspoken about LA district attorney, George Gascon, and, and so I'd like to get into some of that stuff, you know, and I think it's interesting. Like if you, I was looking at your Twitter and you have Mark Andreessen following you and Mayor Suarez from Miami, that's doing some really progressive work. And then folks like Kelly Slater, and it's it's just a really interesting mix of folks that that you've you've captured their attention. What do you think it is about what you're doing that's resonating with folks?
0: Yeah, I think it is it, it, part of what you described as the thesis that it's a really like critical thinking is is a lost art, right? Is that people want to see, and this does tie into the legal thing a little bit, but people want to see and are thirsting for someone like actually going through a process, a forensic process to determine the truth and like looking at at different possibilities cuz the news doesn't do that anymore. They don't you can be pretty you the the mainstream legacy news is very much in the can for a kind of you know, mainstream liberal narrative, and then there's alternative media that's com- doing the same thing for right for the right wing crowd, Fox News and Breitbart and Newsmax, and I can let other people sit here and and battle over which one's worse or which one's you know more factually correct or incorrect or moral or immoral or ethical or unethical, right? But it's pretty clear that both are clearly catering to to one crowd, and I think it was refreshing. For a lot of people on my, you know, even where I may slant a little bit more one in one direction, they're like, wait a second, but I don't feel like he's just looking to find the, the, it's not like he's just trying to find a cookie to toss to that, his side.
1: Yeah, it's almost like a pure version of how news used to be. And and maybe maybe this is from your legal training, uh, where you have to argue the, the opposite side. And the best way to be able to, you know, win an argument is to know your opponent's argument better than they do right
0: yeah and then, and then there's there's some things in people and then when we get into aspects of due process and burden of proof and e- even determining you know public news stories people goes well this is not a courtroom it's like well i don't care if it's a courtroom or not the reason that the rules of the courtroom are that, that, that the american justice system has operated by these rules in the courtroom like the burden of proof or or due process things of like that, you know, beyond a reasonable doubt for crime, is because it's the best process for ascertaining truth, right? Like it, they didn't just pull these rules out of their ass. These are the principles that if you want to, if you want to at least give yourself the best chance and create the the highest likelihood of coming to a correct conclusion that you go through this process. And yeah, I've been able to, some of it is is translating that as translating, you know, some of the, the legal analytical framework to news sources, but some of it's just common sense. And some of it also is, you know, a lot of, I think also I've learned a lot in that on Twitter, I've discovered a lot of political and cultural and social commentators that fall with outside that mainstream right wing, mainstream uh, left wing framework as well. And some of them are very smart, and I've learned a lot in terms of how they attack issues and how they comment on things. And a lot of it is very no-nonsense straightforward because everybody else thinks that they're bullshitting. And I think that a lot of people are waking up to ha- – are just getting fed up. They're getting tired of it. They're getting tired of being bullshit.
1: Where, where did you learn how to critically think, and what are resources you'd recommend people that want to learn how to critically think better to, to absorb? <laughs>
0: I mean, some of it, yes, yeah, some of it I, I was gra- gravitating towards naturally. Like I was, I just read a lot as a kid and, you know, definitely a lot of nonfiction stuff. Right. And then I don't think you learn much in law school. I think the law, law school education is generally pretty inefficient and ineffective, but they do teach you about how to chop stuff up and break stuff down. I'm sure there are some, some books, you know, I, I'll even go search, it's interesting and go search for them afterwards. In terms of you know how to think like a lawyer, or understanding you know kind of the, the general way to outline like a legal brief in terms of conclusion and supportive facts and things of that nature, and then yes you know how to interrogate a witness in terms of you know okay how do you tell whether or not someone has, how do you prove or disprove someone's credibility? Well, show that if they rely show that they were lying here with this piece of evidence, it casts doubt upon what they commented on this piece of evidence, and like you can use write some of that in terms of of analyzing which media sources or which journalists are credible. It's like, see if they fucking lied here. See if they lied there. Can you really trust them after, if you see that they're so obviously trying to, you know, craft a narrative or or ignore things that are relevant, then you know not to trust them on on other topics because that clearly is their MO. And then, you know, I, I just, there are definitely some people, you know, public intellectuals, most of whom I, find, I follow on Twitter that I think are just really smart and the types of people that you, you know, they don't always agree, but these are the types of people that you want to look to for thinking because they're actually trying to search for the right end.
1: Any of them that come top of mind, one or two? Yeah, I mean, the
0: Weinstein brothers are fantastic. You know, there's a guy named Zaid Jelani, who I've been reading a lot recently. Matt Taibbi, Glenn Greenwald, spectacular. Freddie DeBoer, that whole crew. I think also the, the All In podcast and the Fifth Column podcast are two highly analytical, deep, dense podcasts where people are attacking a variety of issues. They don't always agree with one another, but they're really digging into stuff and saying, okay, wait, how, what, what are we looking for? How do we determine you a know, right answer? And also, believe it or not, some management consulting training books are very good because it's all based on case studies. And, you know, it's giving people a kind of set of information and telling them to make other conclusions based on that, that information. And that process is actually very, very helpful.
1: Yeah. Barbara Minto's, the pyramid principle is, is one of those for me. She was a consultant at McKinsey and wrote this book in the sixties. And now it's essentially one of the things you have to read when you onboard at McKinsey and it's logic and thinking and writing.
0: A lot of people like to knock McKinsey Okay, fair enough that they may be trying you know the, the, McKinsey's who you call in when you want to find a lot of economic efficiencies at the expense of you know perhaps some more humanitarian concerns, but I mean you can't argue with with you know their analytical ability and and their capabilities when it comes to finding you know interesting answers and and breaking down issues and solving problems for people
1: so let's get to l a district attorney. George Gascon, what's your concern with him in San Francisco?
0: In terms of, you know, let's call them broader philosophical questions in terms of w- which types of crimes should we punish? How much? What are our priorities in terms of making sure that we are, you know, harsher on criminals, let's call it, and that, you know, lead to some, some harsher punishments for a number of people who might currently commit lower level crimes versus. You know, accepting not being softer on them, but accepting a higher risk of potential crime in our communities and and balancing those interests and saying, okay, can we take a softer, more hands-off approach and still maintain safe communities? Theoretically, this seems like a perfectly reasonable experiment. They already tried the experiment. Absolute train wreck. Deciding to prioritize releasing criminals Decarceration, shorter sentences, less punishment, okay, and non-prosecution of certain lifestyle crimes turned San Francisco into a garbage dump where people are terrorized, people are unsafe, and people and everyone's leaving in droves. We went ahead and ran the experiment and we saw the results. Okay. And then this guy decided to come down here preen like he didn't ruin San Francisco counted on people not paying attention and they didn't and he got elected here and he's trying to do the same thing to los angeles county okay decarceration if your priority is how can we find a way to release people from prison to not arrest and not incarcerate as many people like that is not a priority in and to itself It's only something that you want to do if you can still maintain public order and safety. And clearly we cannot. And his approach does not prioritize the safety and continuity of communities. He prioritizes letting people out of jail and racial equality. I'm sorry, but if the, if the numbers are skewed in terms of the racial makeup of of the prison population, well, one way to even those numbers out is simply to let a bunch of people out of prison. But if you're letting people out of prison, who deserve to be there? Who are criminals? Who hurt people? Who damage property and break the law? Then you're going to get more crime. This is not complicated.
1: Yeah, it's reflexive in nature. It's sort of a you know a vicious cycle.
0: Of course, America had. I think everyone everyone also forgets our trajectory. It's incredible to me how how many people forget America through the 70s, 80s, and into the early 90s in major, big cities was crime ridden the crime number these were dangerous places LA New York you you concerned you're worried that the, the murder rate in New York in 1992 was about 300% what it was in uh, 2015 we r- realized we have to take a harder stance towards crime okay we have to increase police police resources and you know there's been a lot of departments and precincts took the approach of the broken windows theory of policing they were going to prosecute lower level crimes to keep communities cleaner and safer and remove kind of the remnants of social cor- corrosion and decay. And that would have positive externalities. And it pretty much did And American cities plummeted in crime for 20 years. And then we just decided, we decided, you know, something, we're tired of it. We're so, okay, our communities are safe enough. Now it's time to take our foot off the gas pedal. And we'll, we will now prioritize removing people from the penal system from incarceration punishing less crime and, you know, something, we're going to run that experiment. Okay, we ran the experiment and it failed. Prop 47, homelessness, you ask anyone who's being honest, homelessness in California, petty crime, everything has skyrocketed since Prop 47 was instituted that decriminalized a lot of lower level crimes, including making a misdemeanor, robbing anything less than $950 and letting a lot of people out of jail. Like, I'm sorry, like, it's not, this is not a question. It's not like... We're still, th- we're still sitting here contemplating the theory and having an academic discussion. This is now coming up and is now manifesting itself in harm and uh, in people being harmed and terrorized and injured and increased crime. And I think finally, it's gotten so bad over the last six months, particularly in 2021, some people are starting to wake up to it.
1: You know, we've moved a little bit north, so we're out of the city, partly for many of these reasons that you're describing. We were living in Venice a year ago. With COVID, and it, it it got really, really intense. And you know, we had moved to Venice from San Francisco, where we lived in Soma on Eighth and Brandon. We're paying a lot of money for a nice apartment, only to have just be harassed, you know, daily. And and you know, I had my car broken into a bunch. You know, I've read recently that some of the major retailers. CVS and Walgreens—they're actually having to shut stores down in San Francisco because the shoplifting has gotten so bad that it's putting them out of business.
0: Successor in San Francisco is a guy named Chase about Bootian or Bowden. Either way, he's a radically left-wing district attorney. Once again, he's all programs are about how to punish less crime. All, every policy, every approach. That if you're thinking, why, what is, what is his ultimate goal here? If some, if there's a murderer and previously the murder would get life, how do we give him 25 years? If someone, if there's an armed robbery and it usually would be 25 years, how do we only give them 10? Okay. If it's a lower level crime, like breaking and entering or like low level assaults, how do we not prosecute that? It's the most common sense thing. Like if you increase the cost of pro of, of prosecuting, you reduce the cost Two people of committing crimes, are going to commit more crimes, and that's what's happening. Citizens and businesses are eventually going to flee. They experienced so much shoplifting and so much petty, petty crime that they were like, "There's no point in us having these stores here any longer."
1: It's supposedly, what the story is, but
0: you have public officials who are tasked and whose responsibility is to maintain public order and safety, who uh, do not prioritize it. They prioritize punishing people less. To essentially meet their objectives of this utopian society, and they'll double down on their decisions to make it because they don't want to admit they're wrong. Because if going ahead and then taking a tougher stance would be admitting that they were wrong,
1: I, I could see your argument. I think this sort of gets into the the heart of what what I'm trying to do with the show is is humanizing success and and kind of playing rewind and and kind of going back and and taking a look walk down memory lane essentially of like what were some of the challenges that, that my guests have had and how they have overcame them and what were some of those hurdles. And what I as I hear you talking, Matt, I'm thinking about this new show I saw with my wife over the weekend with Oprah and uh, Prince Harry. And I don't know if you've seen it. It's pretty interesting.
0: Are you sure? I think I'd rather stab myself in the foot with a rusty nail than watch Oprah and Prince Harry. But anyways. About how he's a victim for everything and, you know, he's so victimized by being born royalty, blah, 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 blah.
1: He he was really honest about some of the mental health challenges that he's had and, and you know, drug and alcohol abuse. And
0: I doubt his sincerity and I believe it's more so his kind of half-assed grasp for sympathy points. I, I don't find him to be a particularly sincere uh, or ethical person.
1: Well, I, fair, fair putting oneself in his shoes around like, you know, his mom dying and, and all that sort of thing. It's pretty traumatic, you know?
0: Well, what did he have to say?
1: Well, it was more around the the, the storyline where they went from, you know, Harry talking to Oprah. And then it was a story about a, a black chef in the Bay Area that was successful and then had some, some challenges that, that took him down. He's kind of having to rebuild. And there was a story of another gal who had been homeless as a child that Oprah helped her get kind of into college and and funded. And there's a whole thing around Oprah had done this dreams Academy in South Africa, helping, helping females get educated. And I, I, I wonder if, if my mind's going in a few different directions, but like, you know, how much of, of our experience is sort of this Darwinian, thing where, where the, the strong or, you know, are able to persevere and, and kind of pull themselves up by the bootstraps and and there's you know, and other folks are, are not able to do that. And then you layer on this socioeconomic loop where there are certain segments of the population that are just systemically not able to get access to, to education. I think that's the fundamental, I think, problem that we have is our education system. It doesn't teach people how to think or think for themselves, right? So, and then there's this victim mentality gets woven into the narrative. And, and, and I think there, there's some real negative, vicious side effects of that.
0: Yeah, it's certainly, we're not a forgiving civilization. modern Modern America, it's a harsh, tough, unforgiving society, particularly since a lot of, neoliberal economic policies were were integrated kind of slowly but surely in the 80s. And then even more and more than people seem to recall in the 90s by Bill Clinton. And as we expanded into a globalized and digitized economy, it's become become very, very harsh, you know, American society. It's not being at the bottom is not pleasant.
1: Well, and then social media makes it even worse because everybody sort of sees what there's, you have the marketing machine, merchandising, you know, what, what uh...
0: more on even more of a cellular level is that we all evolved to uh, we're tribal, right? And there's always hierarchies and tribes and anything that's going to emphasize your, we're, we're kind of predisposed to feel good about things that show us with elevated status on the, on the totem pole and and feel bad about stuff that show us lower. And from, you know, most of society, for most of our human mankind's existence, there are only so many opportunities to get feedback and get some indicator or stimuli on where you fall on the totem pole. Now, I mean, there's endless, endless images and endless opportunities. And, you know, you're getting, you're getting hit constantly like with, where where you are status wise and who's got something more or less and it, it's you're, people are just bombarded and I definitely think it it is it definitely can impact if you're not well adjusted if you're not prepared and you're not conscious it can certainly do a lot of damage to people and I think it is
1: yeah I had a good fortune to be able to collaborate and and be mentored by a billionaire former boss of mine at, at Esri Jack Dangermond, and he came from a very humble Dutch upbringing and and worked worked very, very hard and, and, and made a very incredible business. And one of the insights that he used to share with me, core principles, was this idea of living above the line. You know, above the line is context and below the line is content. And he said uh, the trap that a lot of most folks get stuck in is that they live below the line and they're continually – reacting to stimulus response function and social media is just the worst for that. I mean, the, and then he said his insight and, and and very much part of his success was being able to live above the line to be able to have an objective view around what was happening and, and, and kind of distance himself from, from that, you know, that stimulus response trap.
0: Yeah, I, I could certainly imagine. And yeah, I think someone recently uh, kind of made a joke, but looking 20 out, it's zooming out 20, 25 years from now, pretty much we're going to see that the most successful Gen Z kids were the ones that had no social media. Maybe, who knows? We'll, we'll see. And I've already, hey, I've already submitted to the, the social media board, right? I know I'm, I'm, Like tapping into the into the information channels, and I don't mind it, and it doesn't drive me crazy. And I'm, I, I, yes, that maybe that's why I have become kind of a source for commentary is because I don't mind having some of the more you know hostile or contentious conversations that a lot would drive a lot of other people crazy. But if you're not that type of person, and you, it's hard if it's definitely can be distracting in developing and pursuing longer term, deeper goals and deeper knowledge and deeper projects.
1: Well, and then I think to your point earlier about the news, one, one of the, what, what seems to be, and you you probably have a lot better articulation of this is that there seems to be a complete lack, erosion and lack of, fair news reporting it's just sort of all content and there's no no context and maybe al jazeera not even a handful of other news reporters are actually still trying to give context around what's happening versus just this you know stimulus response let's get people to click the, the get an ad unit and and, and and pump the monetization without
0: a doubt that that's that's part of it and i mean this is not me speculating you know this is this is observation that I started to, some things that I started to observe, but I was from the outside. And then I talked to some people from the inside of the media organizations and like, yeah, like we, we, we do not resemble, you know, even mildly resemble the types of organizations that we were 15, 20 years ago. Like these, these organizations have much like in electing a new DA, you switch your priorities from, okay, how do we best keep crime low and protect innocent people from being harmed and terrified, to, you know, well, maybe we can allow for a little bit of that, but let's keep more people out of jail. Media is the same thing. How do we report even potentially mildly slanted facts and deeper news stories and and get get scoops and great investigative long-form journalism to, okay, what in a headline is going to get clicked the most? Do do, do people, people, uh, here's, here's one way to maybe crystallize it. When there, when a newspaper was only in print form, one, one time a day they released the stories they were going to release for the day. And there was limited space. There was a limited amount of pages that you could fit stories on. So you had a certain fixed amount of stories that you could fill up right now in the digital age, you can pump as many stories as you can write as you can hire writers and freelancers to pump out you're going to pump them out. It's nonstop every day 24 hours a day. That's a pure think about pure supply and demand, okay? Or or in terms of you increase the supply exponentially, it's going to have an impact on quality, plain and simple, cuz there's no there's n- there's nothing enforcing discipline. There's nothing requiring you to be good. As many things as much it's purely a quantity game. And and that's how these places operate now. And they, they'll tell each other, they'll kind of pretend that they're still, that, that they're still trying to do the right thing. But most of them, I even, I was in New York about a week and a half ago. I had, I was at dinner with someone who worked for a major uh, network news store. And even he, he, and he's a he's a left wing person. And he's like, God, I just shake my head every day. I'm like, you know, I I'm generally on the side of the aisle that we support, but man, we, we just do not do good news. There's so many stories that are so dishonest, but we just, we, we no longer have any internal quality controls, which, which tell us or any conscious to say, no, don't, don't release the story or don't, don't frame it that way.
1: Yeah. Yellow journalism. I guess this is all interesting. I, I, I do want to get back to kind of this idea of, of humanizing success. And, you know, I've had issues in my life that, that I'm increasingly outspoken about from challenges of my hearing I've shared with you, and as well as helping my dad get sober when I was in college. And and in the context of everything you're describing, Matt, I, I believe the bigger the breakdown, the bigger the possibility for a breakthrough. And that's been my experience in life. And I guess having said that, what are some challenges... That you've had to deal with. What are some hurdles that you've had to overcome um, to get where you are today?
0: Well, for one, was really, and I think there's something that that'll be uh, germane for a lot of people right now is timing. Sometimes the the direction of the universe is just a difficult one for for you to encounter based on on where you are in life. And for me, that was, you know, I graduated from law school 2006. I got my first job. I, it, like I said, I was focused on the entertainment industry. Entertainment law jobs right out of law school without going and being in a firm for a couple of years. Like you had to take a seat. They were very, they were highly desired, but you had to take a pay cut to get them. So I took a big pay cut to take a highly desirable entertainment law job. And that was 2007. And then the economy completely implodes March 2008. And pretty much right after that, I mean, this company that I was working for, which had been very hot when I started working for them, came and said, we're, we're laying people off. And I don't know if you recall, but 2008, even through for well over a year, probably almost two years, was absolute carnage. Like there, there's, I think even people right now, they don't understand just how bad the economy was during the Great Recession. And so there, there I was left. I had an Ivy League degree and a degree at UCLA Law School, but i had only gotten one job for about 15 months. It's not like I've made a lot of money. I wasn't established. And nobody was hiring. And when I say nobody was hiring, I truly mean nobody was. There was nobody was hiring people for new jobs. Like even over this last year, right, during the pandemic, there have been winners and losers in the economy. In 2008, there were just losers. No, no, all the jobs that uh, a recent UCLA grad could have uh, conceived of getting, I took over 200 informational interviews. I got introduced to the top venture capitalists in town, law firms, producers, no, nobody was hiring, And, you know, well, I had other friends who had gotten into the workforce right out of college. And had, instead of, you know, one year in, they were four or five years in. And, you know, they had saved up a little money and they had established themselves in jobs. And so they, you know, they had to take a step back, but they, they weren't in as rough a position as I was. So I had to really fight and claw for about two years through 2008 and 2009. And in terms of the breakthrough, and it was kind of a slow breakthrough, but I think it's an interesting one. So like I said, I had been interested in the traditional entertainment world, film and television, et cetera. I remember it would had to be late 2008, I believe. And I'm sitting there, you know, on unemployment, scrounging together you know, little work from a friend's father who was an attorney, and just wondering when the hell people were going to start hiring again, and you know, and I was like thinking, wait a, second, you know, do I really want to go back in entertainment? I mean, I want to just after all this go get a job at an agency in a production company. I don't know, maybe that's not what I want to do. And I wasn't really interested in the tech world at all at that point. But then that morning, I was reading the Wall Street Journal paper edition. And I saw that LinkedIn had just gotten the first private market, $1 billion private valuation for a social media company. I was like, that's interesting to me. And it just definitely kind of aligned with some of my, some recent observations of mine that, you know, social media in the tech world was where everything was shifting. And even though I didn't really uh, have an orientation towards technology, what maybe this is something to look into. And so based off that, I'd read in the local Beverly Hills paper that a guy that I, I knew I went to high school with, he was, had been a senior when I was a freshman. I didn't know him too well, but he was a, friend's, a friend of mine's older brother's friend. I'd read that he just raised uh, a, a round of financing for a social media company. Being the natural networker that I was, I just figured I'd reach out to him. I MySpace messaged this guy, and his name was Jason Nazar. And he had a company called DocStock and DocStock. And so the company was creating just a, you know, the one-stop shop repository for legal documents, professional business documents. And it was kind of an SEO play if we aggregate, you know, enough documents on this platform and we'll come up top in search results for all these business documents. And there you go. I, MySpace, Jason, like, hey, saw that you raised this money. I'm interested in the space, love to meet, blah, blah, blah. That night, a friend invites me to the Lakers game. I get a tap on my shoulder, and it's Jason. He's sitting right behind me, and so you know, he, we got to talking. He said, "Hey, here's a few things. Go research this stuff over the weekend. Come back to me on Monday, and we'll check. And you know, if you get up to speed, you can come. You know, consult. I'll come put you on some projects over at Doc Stock." And he did, and we worked on. I worked at Doc Stock for a couple months on on a handful of projects, and kind of cut my teeth and started understanding kind of the the blood and guts and the economics of you know, websites and social media uh, platforms, at least what they were in 2008, nine. And then, you know, then it came to the time of, hey, Matt do you, you know, are you going to come and help me build this company for the next couple of years? Or do you want to me to introduce you to some people that are at startups that are probably, you know, a little closer to your tastes? Obviously chose the latter, but that did, that's how I met Mike Schneider, a mobile road, And that's how I got my first, you know, start, first exposure to about a half dozen, early Silicon Beach companies. And although I didn't, you know, cut the cord on the law thing and just go all in on any of them, that's how I got involved in the startup space.
1: Yeah, I love that. You know, I didn't know that story about Jason. I had done some work for him at Doc Stock as well. After that, my I was there 2012. And I am kind of rewinding your story just took me back memory lane cuz I had been a mortgage broker out of college and it was amazing time to be doing mortgages until 08 happened and I got completely wiped out I I lost everything it was completely demoralizing and humiliating and I had to re- com- completely reimagine what 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 I wanted to do and I had a, a series of just luck and 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 then c- recognizing that it was luck and then being able to capitalize on it. And I think there was also a certain amount of making your own luck too. So I had got into tech in, in 08 and I started a little business called city source where you could take photos of, of graffiti and potholes and send it to the city. And I had, I, I Facebook message Eric Garcetti at uh, when he was still the president of the city council and, and, and sort of pitched him our idea he put me in touch with somebody in the three one one department at the city, and, and they gave us some kind of a data model that we could fix our product to. And then we got the product built. And then I saw on Twitter that he was gonna be doing a red ribbon cutting for a, a library in a Silver Lake, so I just went down there and and just said, hey, you know, showed him the phone. I said, hey, Eric, like, you know. And he ended up inviting me to his office, and one thing led to another, and we ended up producing Garcetti three one one and a whole bunch of other projects with him, including working on something with DocStock. We, we did a project with, with Mayor Garcetti, Business 123. Both of these stories are, are really probably pretty common for, for folks where you just have to look into the abyss and figure out what it is that, you know, you're made out of and, 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 and dream a little bit and have the guts to go get it.
0: Yeah, you got to hustle. You got to ask. And the other, you know, the other thing is, if there's not a position open, go and see, go, go and see what you can do for free. Yeah, there, there were, whether it was Mobile Roadie or a couple other startups, I just went ahead and say, oh, okay, this is something that's going to be interesting to a person, A, B, C, D, and E. And I went and, you know, and made introductions and all of a sudden like, oh, whoa, Matt, let's figure out a way for you, for us to work together.
1: Yeah, you're serving the greater good. You're not just being self-serving. You're trying to add value.
0: Yeah. And, and that, that's something I've tried to follow a, a habit that I developed when I was in a desperate position. I want to say maybe not desperate, but like I said, 2008, two thousand nine. there weren't a bunch of nice, juicy, interesting. And once again, people don't remember, people don't remember the startup world and the tech world in general had not really taken off until it really didn't happen until 2011, 2012, the whole idea of like, a two hundred thousand dollar a year salary with equity at a at a startup or an early stage company that was well financed that had cool offices and was cool to put on your resume that didn't exist in two thousand eight. Yeah, yeah. It's it, it's interesting for me to talk to kids in their late twenties and early thirties now because even them they got into the workforce when tech going into the startup world or tech was a no brainer. I was like, oh, okay. There's all these amazing companies that either are you know provide software services or our consumer brands on the internet or somewhere in that architecture there. And, Oh, great. I'll get a pretty good market salary and a little bit of equity and we'll have some, you know, nice offices because we raised $15 million. Great. Like that wasn't, that was, uh, those were uh, few and far between in 2008 to 2011, 12. And then all of a sudden, if you graduate and got into the workforce, at that point, like, oh, okay, I, I'm upwardly mobile, well-educated kid. I'm going to aim for one of those jobs. So like, yeah, oh, this is nice to have that
1: option. Yeah, it is. This, uh, this gets into my world with what I'm doing at Hunt Club and, and talent and all that. But that's for another discussion. Looking at the clock, we're at time. This has been an incredible discussion, Matt, as always. Wanted to wrap it up with a few few questions, if I may. Kind of a probing one. What's something the world doesn't know about Matt Belinsky that we wouldn't know if I wasn't too rude to ask?
0: I mean, life is alone time. I think a lot of people think like, Matt, you're always out. You're always doing this. Just like, I am, I'm am alone. I, I'm in solid, have more solitary time than a lot of people think. You, you know, I, I've worked generally remote and have for a long time. I mean, you know, I, 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 have my antisocial moments more than may, many people may think.
1: You're a slingshot.
0: Uh, uh, that's one way to put it, for sure.
1: Yeah, I love that. I, I, I can I, I identify with that. If you could magically have any band or any music artist play any venue, who would it be and where?
0: Say Led Zeppelin, Madison Square Garden. I'll keep it pretty simple, man.
1: How can our audience be of service to you? Well, one.
0: If you're interested in Los Angeles and California politics, I will definitely be getting involved in trying to, you know, make sure this recall of the governor who we spared from our, our, our our flames today. If you're interested in that, interested in recalling the district attorney for Los Angeles County, those are two causes that I'm going to be getting involved in very shortly. If you, like I said, and and to where uh, you can find me, Kind of finalizing some stuff around my podcast. If you guys have interesting guests, would love to hear thoughts and, and get introductions there. And if you are involved in any interesting early stage companies that are in the creator economy, really cool new health and wellness products and services, or you know, or, or things of that nature, you know, those are a lot. A lot of my business activity right now is focused there. So would love to would love to connect.
1: Great. Right. And how, how can people find you? Is it mostly Twitter and Instagram?
0: Yeah, primarily Twitter and Instagram for the moment. It's Matt Belinsky, M-A-T-T-B-I-L-I-N-S-K-Y. Be waiting on the podcast. Should be launching by hopefully no later than the end of June. There
1: we go. So appreciate you, Matt. You're an mensch.
0: Thank you. It takes one to no one, Kurt.
1: Thanks again to Matt Belinsky. My attorney and inspired protagonist for sharing his story. Tune in next week for my conversation with Clint Schaff, head of the Los Angeles Times studio. I'm Curtie D on Twitter and Instagram. Also Kurt Deredex on LinkedIn. And until next time, Curtie D loves you.
0: Thanks for listening. To review the show notes for this episode, which includes a summary, key takeaways, and any links mentioned, visit CurtiD.com. Be sure to follow or subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts to be notified when new episodes go live. Stay tuned for more unique perspectives shaping the world on The Curti D Show.